is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this episode, Suki Thompson had a chat with her friend Helen Gorman. Suki is a star player in the marketing world, having set up client and agency consultancy Oyster Catchers 10 years ago. Centaur Media PLC, which publishes Marketing Week, acquired the business in 2016, and Suki now runs Centaur's consultancy, training and pitch advisory business. McDonald's is one of the clients she talks about in the podcast. Suki is a former chair of the Marketing Society and a player in industry organisations such as Wackle and the Marketing Group of Great Britain. Her guest, Helen, is an experienced marketing director. She's worked at GSK on brands such as Ribena and LucasAid and at Britvic on Robinson's Fruit Shoot. Most recently, she's been working for the post office on its digital transformation. In the podcast, she shares a few stories and lessons learned working with these household name brands. The wide-ranging discussion covers how to write the perfect creative brief, the need for marketers to understand the product supply chain when pitching an idea to the board, and what it feels like to be sued by Sir Martin Sorrell. So, Helen, look, we first met when you were at Britvic. Yeah. Um, tell me, remind me a little bit about what you've been doing. So I spent um, six and a half years at Britvic as their brand marketing director, looking after Robinsons and Fruit Shoot, so sort of two really iconic brands in the UK, um, having a lot of fun, um, but actually really starting to understand how marketing from kind of 2010 was starting to shift. Um, particularly from sort of you know, just being involved in the creative side of the business to really being rooted in the commercial um, and the delivery. So then you left there and then you did that thing that a lot of marketing people do, which is a moment of inflection about what do you do next and how do you um, how do you then continue your career? So what did you then do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I took one foot off the cliff, um, sort of consciously and subconsciously thinking about, OK, so what's next? Because prior to Britvic, I'd spent a 11 years at GlaxoSmithKline running LucasAid and Ribena. And so I decided to, to go it alone, um, which was the first brave step, and to try and pick up some really interesting consultancy interim projects that I felt a real passion about. Um, so I spent seven months at Kodak, um, another sort of iconic brand from the from the 70s, 80s in the UK, running a really interesting project for them in New York um, with a well-known athleisure brand over there. Um, and then, as you know, Suki, most recently, I've just finished a year at the post office um, delivering marketing transformation, which um, has been very, very topical in terms of how marketing is really changing in 2018. Yeah, and the, the post office has been a fascinating journey for both of us, hasn't it? From yeah. our side at Oyster Catchers and your side. So why don't you talk, tell me about how it's been from your perspective of being the kind of lead marketeer there um, in that transformation journey? So just to give a little bit of context, the, the post office itself has gone through an enormous amount of change. And from separating from Royal Mail in 2012 and lo- losing to the tune of a million pounds a day, yeah, at the end of... Uh, I mean, uh, 
you know, just unbelievable government subsidy required for that organisation to at the end of 2016-17 fiscal year turning in a profit of just shy of 20 million. I mean, a huge delta. And therefore, the marketing function required to lead the organisation in its next chapter to be an organisation generating profit, not necessarily requiring government subsidy, is a very, very different marketing organisation. So it's a marketing organisation really needed to lead, to commercially deliver, to digitally deliver, rather than being a service function for a business that was losing that amount of profit each year. But for me, the real focus was around building a marketing function that really had the capability to deliver the future strategy of the organisation. And what that meant was building capability within digital, building capability commercially, and particularly helping that team really know the commercials of the business and really focus on talking the language of the CFO, not necessarily the CMO, which was really, really important. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think from my perspective, um, having built up Oyster Catchers over the last seven years and then selling it to Centaur 18 months ago, the post office was one of the first um, projects, although we'd been working with the post office on and off for about seven or eight years, um, for um, Oyster Catchers as the newly part of Centaur. Mm. And I think one of the things that being part of the group has enabled us to do was to get some of the fantastic content from places like Marketing Week, from e-consultancy, some of the learning from um, and the leadership from those brands to be able to bring um, that kind of kind of quite cutting edge thinking around where marketing should be going um, to to the post office in that kind of journey. Yeah. Um, And. I think the other piece that was very interesting for me was this real kind of change where um, marketing departments can go from being relatively standard from, you know, a traditional marketing department, which is what we'd seen at the post office at that time, then the digital sitting on the other side, and then that kind of need to bring it together and knit it together. And then also bring those agencies along at the same time. Um, How did you feel... Uh, Because one of the things we couldn't do, not that we wanted to anyway, was we couldn't change the agencies at the time. So how how did you bring the agencies? Which agencies were you using and and how did you bring them along on that journey? So creatively, we were using Mullen Lowe and from a media perspective, working with Cara. So two great London agencies. And I think they were really excited about the change. Um, When they came to work with the post office three years ago, the business was still losing money. And therefore, I think it's fair to say that some of the work that was being put out wasn't the most creative. And as we know, you know, agencies, and great clients love to make brilliant work that drives commercial results. So the agencies were really ready for change. And one of the things that I set about doing very early on when I joined the post office was understanding what was working from their perspective, but also what wasn't working. And where did they see the potential for the post office brand and the business to go, both creatively and commercially. And from that, we started to build a very simple model, but a model that was really different to what the post office had been using. And first of all, it started with great creative briefing. 
And I think the the agency, the creative agency, Mullen Lowe, had experienced some quite tough briefs from post office. Um, so briefs that were sort of 15, 16 pages long. Um, and one of the things that we worked on together as a, as a business and an agency team was to get a really great creative brief. One of the things I see across all our clients that we work with is this inability often for clients to produce a great brief. And then even if they do create one good one that they then give to agencies, they then change it slightly and they give lots of different briefs. And then you suddenly end up exactly as you say with multiple pages um, and also um, kind of a lack of understanding about what I would call very old fashioned um, understanding about what makes great advertising, great communication work, which is, you know, what is the proposition? What are we, who are we trying to talk to? In what kind of media are we trying to talk to? And so some of those really basic skills don't seem to exist very well. Something that I've carried with me throughout my marketing career and various ECDs that I've worked with from Nick Gill at BBH, Dom Goldman, who was at at Grey, have said the great clients get the great work. And really understanding how to write a brief that when it lands on the creative director's desk, they are excited by it. They want to put their best teams on it and it starts to create a buzz around the agency. And I think any brand's capable of delivering that. You know, I've been lucky to work on some really exciting soft drinks brands from LucasAid and working with Laura Croft through to Ribena, Fruit Shoot. So post office was a little bit, gosh. Yeah. And really, what, what, what do we do with post office? But when I got in and understood the brand, it's got so much love from the nation and it's such a fantastic brand. Actually, it, it deserves really, really great creative work. And so... Writing a brief template for post office was one of the first things um, that I did and turning that 15 page template into a two page template. And to your point, being really specific about the killer things that need to go into the brief, the proposition, what's the problem you're trying to solve and what does success look for the business at the end of it? It is that classic sense, isn't it, of it, it, it takes time to make a short brief. It, re- it really does. And, and short brief is the key. And I know some of the creative directors I know wouldn't mind me saying it because they've, they've told me this over breakfast many times. We don't have the attention span to read a long brief. So write us <laughs> a short one. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, really excited me, and we've talked quite a lot about this, is um, at Central we launched this M3 model last year. Yes. Um, and actually the post office was one of the first examples of using the M3 model, which is yeah. around bringing marketing and digital together. Um, I am still fascinated how so many marketing teams and so many marketing functions that I'm looking at um, are still not really driving the marketing um, and digital together for, yeah. for all sorts of reasons, partly because they're in that journey partly because uh, it's too complicated or, or or sometimes they don't see that it's it's really necessary um, but the other part that I think is is interesting about m3 so it's that it's that um, move and evolving from uh, years ago the four Ps yeah. and price was that critical part of the initial yeah. four Ps that we've taken out of m3 yeah. um, and I'm just interested in you know we've talked about this before but but um, what's your view about where does price sit within the M3 model? And then and then how closely should marketing and digital come together? So 
I, th I think price is a really, really interesting question. And from my time in FMCG, um, in the soft drinks business, I think the industry got to a place where price almost wore out. Um, and what I mean by that is there was so much overt focus on price and promotion that a lot of the other areas of the marketing mix kind of fell by the wayside. And that's fine if all you're trying to do as a business is trade your way to short-term profit. But ultimately, it ends up becoming a race to the bottom. And therefore, whilst it has its place, one of the things we were talking about at post office rather than price was value in that, you know, what value are we offering to the customer? What value are they prepared to pay for the service? And then really focusing on more of the other areas of the of the marketing mix. And, and on your on your interesting point about marketing and digital. I think sometimes the language can be quite unhelpful. And certainly when I first joined post office, it was a little bit of a barrier. It was we have a marketing team, we have a digital team. What are we what are we, what yeah. are we trying to do? What are we trying to create? And so one of the things that we started to do was bring in the customer journey. What is the journey that our customers are going on and how do we make sure we're with them every step of the way? And talking in that language started to weave that marketing and digital team together a little bit more, which was really, really interesting. So what I wanted to do with Oyster Catchers was to set up a business that that could do three things, that could help clients and agencies work really effectively together, that increasingly became around um, new marketing models. And I think the last three or four years, my absolute passion and, and, and obsession has been around how do we make this new marketing model work? Um, particularly focused at clients, but also within the agency environment as well. Um, and then um, I, my other big passion is training, as yeah. you know. Yes. And and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I really felt very strongly um, that the the training and the calibre of clients at that time actually wasn't as good as agencies. Yeah. Um, so seven or eight years ago, I think agencies were spending quite a lot of time on helping train and learn and develop. Um, but actually, my observation with clients on the whole was um, there was a distinct lack of training outside the general P&G Unilever type yeah. environments. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to build a consultancy that could do those three things mm. um, and pull them together. Yeah. And what we then did was we put a club at the middle of it. So we wanted to bring them all together. And everyone said, oh, I'm not sure you should do that. You can't have the CMO from Sainsbury's and Tesco's and Asda in the same room. They don't want to be together. And actually, that wasn't true at all. Yeah, yeah. So talk about um, marketing training, we were both sharing earlier that we were fortunate sort of 20 years or so ago to have quite a lot of investment um, in ourselves and our training. And it's quite a hot topic at the moment about the lack of investment from businesses in their marketing people. Um, at Post Office, we've just been working on building some what we're calling marketing best practice um, in the creative space, which you're helping us with through e-consultancy. Could you just talk to me a little bit more about what your your vision is for, for e-consultancy and the sort of modern way of training a marketeer when time is so pressured and challenged in organisations. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, is that it is extraordinary, isn't it, that any other profession um, you go into and then you expect to continue to do exams um, in order to evolve and achieve and get better. 
Um, and, and, you know, even the, there are very few chief execs now, I think, without, a, without an MBA or, or probably even people sitting on the board. Mm. But it is quite possible to go into a marketing or an agency role and actually never do an exam. Yeah. Um, which fun, actually fundamentally I think is wrong. Mm. Um, I mean, I have done various degrees. Um, and so I, I am particularly passionate about learning. But I, I just think it's the mindset's wrong for the beginning. So I think this concept of always be learning is really important. And therefore, you've got to be able to have learning in all sorts of different ways from, uh, you know, I still passionately believe face to face learning is brilliant. So, you know, take RBS, um, David Weldon, who I think is an extraordinarily brilliant marketeer, has been running a transformation program for the last you know, 18 months, two years, and has put in a program where um, he's taken his all his new team through what the new transformation looks like, taking them on that journey. They've been half-day sessions, absolutely face-to-face about team building, making new things happen. Um, and that's been really, really beneficial to them. But then, you know, people want to have real kind of snackable bite-sized learning as well. Mm. So, and I think that's everything from, um, you know, we do kind of little bits of training, which might be, what are the right questions to ask about AI? What are the right questions to ask about, you know, a new piece of technology? Um, what What are the worries that you might have? And so you can either use it if you are a more senior to ask the right questions yeah. in a meeting and yeah. kind of cheat. Quite helpful. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're or, uh, at a different stage in your career, it's about do I know? So do I understand what programmatic means in 60 seconds? And if the answer is yes, then that's absolutely fine. But actually, if you're listening to a 60 second quick podcast that says these are the fundamentals and you think I have absolutely no idea what you're talking to, then you definitely need to go back and, and, and learn some more. Let's talk a bit about clients and agencies. I think as a client, you have a real sense of duty to inspire your agency about your business. And I think a lot of clients listening to this will probably want to sort of hang, draw and quarter me. But I think often too much accountability is put on the agency. And I think it has to start by you being a really inspiring client to make the agency excited and hungry for your brand or your business. And I think that's I think that's really, really important. So I think from a client perspective, what we often get wrong is that we might spend three, four, five weeks writing a brief, think job done, we've got a brilliant brief. And then the actual briefing itself isn't particularly great. We either don't have the right people there, we don't do it in the right environment. And therefore, all of that sort of inspiration and that excitement that you had as a client generating the brief gets lost when you deliver it to the agency. And I think that's a real shame. What's the best one you've done? What's the best environment that you've done? The best one I did was for Fruit Shoot when I was at Britvic. Um, and we said to the agency that we were briefing them. And this was for a global campaign. So the first global campaign for Fruit Shoot, which is a which is a kid soft drink. Um, and we said that we were going to need all the key people from the agency for the day. And we took them to Legoland. And we took them. Oh, cool. We took them to be the consumer that they were going to write the work from. We went on all the rides, and then at the end of the day, we'd sort of hired part of the venue and we delivered the briefing. But that was probably the the best briefing that I've done. 
It's interesting for me, isn't it? In pitches, we always encourage the clients and we work really closely with clients to do really inspirational briefings. So, you know, the one for B-Win, um, we actually, you know, we did it within a, a sporting environment with F1. We took them to their offices yeah. and they got to sit in a car and they got to play and they got to see what the real F1 experience is about. Um, with McDonald's, obviously, you know, we're often use a McDonald's environment. Um, and, and, you know, I said British Airways, you know, we actually flew them across the Atlantic on the aeroplane so they could experience it. But um, I'm then amazed, actually. It's like clients get kind of emotional fatigue or something. They forget that once you're in a relationship, you should carry on doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I do, and I do highlight McDonald's actually because one of the things I think McDonald's do brilliantly, um, they have this three-legged stool, uh, which is their uh, the client themselves, so the McDonald's people, their suppliers, so people actually like us mm-hmm. at, at Oyster Catchers, people like their agencies like Leo Burnett, uh, OMD, and the marketing store, and um, and Linney's, and then they invite them to their AGM along with their franchisees. So at that AGM, Paul Pomeroy and the team, who's the chief exec, will stand up and actually talk to their whole team about this is the vision that we've got. This is where we're going. This is the journey we're going on. Um, The marketing team, so all the agencies and the clients within the marketing department will go out for dinner the night before that event. And, you know, there's a real sense of openness right from the chief exec down that then I think is then um, incorporated throughout the whole business and that shared and that real kind of relationship. Um, but but more often than not, it just doesn't exist, does it? Yeah. What do you think about, um, you know, Mark Pritchard has just announced that uh, P&G, what they're going to be doing is have bring agencies from across all their networks together uh, and get them to work much more closely together in this kind of new agency yeah. cross-group group. Yeah. What do you think about that? So I think it's going to be interesting. I'd love to be a fly on the wall with some of the characters getting together face to face. But from a from a marketing perspective, I think one of the things I've always believed to be true from 20 years ago to present day is that people buy great ideas and consumers love interacting with an idea if it's brilliant, if it's culturally relevant or if it's relevant to them. And I think it's really exciting because pooling those creative brains to feed off each other, I suspect we're going to see some pretty exciting content coming out from that. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's such a rubbish idea. (laughs) (laughs) Not because I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the the thought in clients' head is it's going to be amazing because we're going to bring all these agencies together and the very best talent's going to work with the very best talent. And it's so easy because O2 have done it across their agencies yeah. like McDonald's. And I absolutely agree if you've got different agencies with basically different disciplines coming together. There's a bit of fight, but I think it is manageable and it's worth the friction to make the relationship work really well and make everyone work collaboratively together. So we, you know, we do the evaluation of McDonald's. We work with them really closely all the time on it. And there is healthy friction at moments Mm -hmm. in time, particularly around digital, that actually, you know, Emily Summers and I will will talk about and agree and, and their team will enable that to happen. And we know that it winds the agencies up but actually in a good way yeah however 
I would never say to P&G, right, could you go over there with Unilever and work really nicely in a room together um, on these really important things and collaborate and share the way that you work together and, uh, and the way that you're enumerated. It's just not possible. You would never go to all the telco companies. I mean, one, you're not legally allowed to in many instances. But it's just, I just think it's, it's almost like the, uh, in some ways, the arrogance of P&G that says we're so big, we're so important, we know how to make all these agencies work together. And it doesn't matter that fundamentally a lot of them in, are in competition together. Um, and I, uh, and of course, it, I might be proved wrong. But actually, that is, it's fundamentally not the way I would go about it. And if I think if we look at um, where WPP is now and they're going to make some really big changes, we're mm. seeing publicists make some really big yeah. changes. The industry has got to fundamentally change and the agencies have got to work differently. Mm. But I don't think clients making them work across uh, across businesses in that wholehearted way is the way for, for the industry to grow and evolve and get back some of the status that it's had in the past. Mm. Well, I think it's going to be a really interesting exercise to um, to observe. But, uh, but I think to your to your point, the challenge that P&G will have is the leadership required to make that work, I think is going to be immense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will see. That will, will be interesting. Um, how do we, I mean, we talked a little bit about training earlier on, yeah. but uh, my other big bugbear, how on earth do we attract graduates uh, into our industry? I really passionately want those 18, 19, 21 year olds to mm -hmm. want to come into the industry. And actually, they're not. They don't. No. They they might be interested in creativity. They're not massively interested in going into marketing. Um, and you know, Marketing Week published some stats the other day that's, yeah. that were you know really worrying to they me. They were. They were. What do you think? I think if we looked at our industry a bit like you as a marketer look at some of those brands where you go, they've lost their way a bit. They're not quite sure what they're about um, or what they're doing. I think that's part of the reason. And so I got into marketing over 20 years ago. And when I did, I was really clear what marketing was, albeit, you know, 20 years ago, it was a bit simpler, wasn't it? But it was, it was very much about, you know, it was an exciting career. It was about driving, driving growth for a brand or a business. And it was about making great advertising to do it. And I don't know what the modern day articulation is, but I, I think that if you're at university now looking at the marketing industry, one minute we're talking about, well, every, everything's digital. Then we're sort of going back to analog. Then it's like, well, we've got to be master of the P&L. Then it's, we've got to be master of the idea. And I think there's a real opportunity for us as an industry to define what we're about because really we're about we're about growth we're about the growth economy and that's got to be exciting but i just don't think we're portraying it in a really simple way anymore i completely agree and i um but it should be exciting shouldn't it, it because should. it should it you know the whole of marketing and um the agency environment is is absolutely what youngsters love and are passionate about. You know, they create their own films all the time. They yeah. are constantly creating messaging about themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think they're probably more into brands and, and marketing and advertising than we ever were. Or that they realise, I look at the content yeah. that my 15-year-old and 13-year-old generate and I think, 
God, I wish I could do some of that <laughs> because it's brilliant and they're just on it. But I don't think they realize that actually creating that content, if it came from a brand and drives growth, I, I, I often don't think they realize that that's what marketing is. So, um, so Suki, any um, killer mistakes in your in your sort of business career that you're um, you're able to share with us? Yes, I made the mistake of taking at face value um, somebody's word on uh, what they were doing. They were setting up a new business. Um, they said that they'd got uh, the permission of their ultimate boss to do that. Um, I took them on face value and then I found out that it wasn't entirely true. So I upset a very big chief exec who then um, absolutely threw the book at me and took us to court. And his name was Martin Sorrell. Ouch. Yeah, it was a massive ouch, actually. Um, and, and, you know, for, for all sorts of ways. And, and actually, I genuinely at the beginning thought he'd made a mistake. I thought I, I because I genuinely didn't really understand what I was doing was wrong. And then equally, it wasn't, he wasn't, I mean, he, he did actually go after the people who were trying to leave one of his businesses. And Martin's done it lots of times. Yeah. He was very vocal about people that um, did any form of moonlighting or weren't completely unutterly loyal to him and to WPP when they decided to leave. Um, and uh, uh, I, I thought I would just phone him up and say, Martin, I, I'm sorry that, you know, I I think you made a mistake. I don't think you realised what we were trying to do. And he was, no, I'm very, very clear. If you potentially give um, some breakaways from our business, then they are actively brave enough to leave my empire. Um, and therefore, it's your fault. And I will take you to court. Wow. We settled out, out of court and we are good friends again now, uh, as we are with all the agencies. But that was definitely the biggest mistake I've ever made and, the, and certainly some of the worst weeks of my, of my working life. Wow. <laughs> what about you in comparison? Yeah, so um, my biggest mistake was quite early on in my career. Um, I was working on Ribena at the time. I was working on a really big piece of innovation that from a consumer point of view was absolutely, without shadow of a doubt, the right thing to do. What I failed to do was listen to some of the internal manufacturing teams about how difficult it was going to be for us as an organisation to bring this innovation to market. Um, so I was a bit headstrong, didn't quite believe them, didn't quite believe the challenges that they were putting on the table, that not only logistically was this innovation going to be really difficult to bring to market, but commercially, they just couldn't find a way. To, to make it work but sort of being a really headstrong junior sort of quite naive marketeer thought it was the right thing to do and um, at GlaxoSmithKline there was a, a monthly board meeting where you took a paper so I proudly walked through the door with my paper um, to very quickly on in the presentation got what I can only describe as mullered um, by the board <laughs> for not really understanding the value of cross-functional teams of different areas of expertise and that actually, whilst yes, it's all about the consumer, the business has to be able to deliver it on a logistical basis and importantly, a commercial basis. That mistake for me taught me that you don't always have to know everything yourself but you need to bring the people in who do um okay so what's your most inspirational moment 
My most inspirational moment was back in 2002 when I was running LucasAid and LucasAid Sport and we were working with the England rugby team um, and this is a year ahead of them winning the World Cup and I was really privileged to work with Sir Clive Woodward um, on high-performing teams and something that he said really inspired me and has stuck with me all through my career and he said, you've got to trust the other people that you're that you're playing with that you're that you're doing business with to do their bit and he said but think about it you're one of the people on that pitch too and others are going to trust you and that means you've got to be absolutely brilliant at the bits that you do do and it just really really resonated with me and you know what I hope that I've done through my career is be brilliant at the little bits that that I can bring. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, isn't it? Um, I think for me, at the beginning of 2016, we did a club event on diversity. And uh, it was something I was sort of interested in. Uh, It was beginning, well, it wasn't the beginning of diversity at all, but uh, in the industry. And I I just remember looking at the stats and being utterly horrified in how undiverse our industry was. Um, And we talked about it there. And one of the people that I invited to come onto the panel was a lady called Catherine Mayer, who was part of the Women's Equality Party. Um, I remember. Do you remember? I was there. there. You had Karen Blackett on the panel as well. I had Karen Blackett. Absolutely. And Karen was amazing. But actually, Catherine was was equally amazing and talking about the setup of the Women's Equality Party. And a couple of days later, actually, you might even come to that. Uh, I had a breakfast and said to anyone who wanted to be involved to come and to just come and help. And Sophie Walker, their leader, came along um, and we had 25 agencies that came in. And then uh, we had a breakfast. We talked about what we could do to help the Women's Equality Party. And, you know, wind forward, um, the time then that those agencies spent on creating campaigns, giving media, helping and supporting the Women's Equality Party made a fundamental difference to the way that the party has been able to to, to, to grow, to evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, last year they then asked me to go on to their um, uh, council. So I sit as advisor to the Women's Equality Party. Uh, equally on the back of that, we um, now have um, diversity stats for every agency that we uh, work with, regardless whether they're part of the club or not. Um, we publish them. We work with a number of the trade magazines on that. We also do it now with clients. Much easier now because we've got gender pay gap yeah. stats. Yeah. Um, but for me, that was for a, a very important moment at the beginning of the diversity agenda for me. Thank you, Helen. How lovely to spend some time with you. Thanks, Suki. Great as always to speak to you. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.